Chapter One, Part One of The Pit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Pit by Frank Norris. Dedicated to my brother, Charles Tolman Norris, in memory of certain lamentable tales of the round dining room table heroes, of the epic of the pewter platoons, and the romance cycle of Gaston Le Fox, which we invented, maintained, and found marvellous at a time when we both were boys. Principal Characters in the Novel Curtis Jadwin, Capitalist and Speculator Sheldon Corthell, an artist. Landry Court, broker's clerk. Samuel Gretry, a broker. Charles Cressler, a dealer in grain. Mrs. Cressler, his wife. Laura Dearborn, protege of Mrs. Cressler. Paige Dearborn, her sister. Mrs. Emily Wessels, aunt of Laura and Paige. The trilogy of the Epic of the Wheat includes the following novels. The Octopus, a story of California. The Pit, a story of Chicago. The Wolf, a story of Europe. These novels, while forming a series, will be in no way connected with each other, save only in their relation to 1. The production, 2. The distribution, 3. The consumption of American wheat. When complete, they will form the story of a crop of wheat from the time of its sowing as seed in California to the time of its consumption as bread in a village of Western Europe. The first novel, The Octopus, deals with the war between the wheat grower and the railroad trust. The second, The Pit, is the fictitious narrative of a deal in the Chicago wheat pit, while the third, The Wolf, will probably have for its pivotal episode the relieving of a famine in an old-world community. The author's most sincere thanks for assistance rendered in the preparation of the following novel are due to Mr. G. D. Molson of New York, whose unwearied patience and untiring kindness helped him to the better understanding of the technical difficulties of a very complicated subject and more especially he herewith acknowledges his unmeasured obligation and gratitude to her who helped the most of all. F. N. New York, June 4th, 1901 Chapter 1, Part 1 At eight o'clock in the inner vestibule of the auditorium theatre by the window of the box office, Laura Dearborn, her younger sister Paige, and their aunt, Aunt Wes, were still waiting for the rest of the theater party to appear. A great, slow-moving press of men and women in evening dress filled the vestibule from one wall to another. A confused murmur of talk and the shuffling of many feet arose on all sides, while from time to time, when the outside and inside doors of the entrance chanced to be opened simultaneously, a sudden draught of air gushed in, damp, glacial, and edged with the penetrating keenness of a Chicago evening at the end of February. The Italian Grand Opera Company gave one of the most popular pieces of its repertoire in that particular night, and the Cresslers had invited the two sisters and their aunt to share their box with them. It had been arranged that the party should assemble in the auditorium vestibule at a quarter of eight, 
but by now the quarter was gone, and the Cresslers still failed to arrive. "'I don't see,' murmured Laura anxiously for the last time. "'What can be keeping them? Are you sure, Page, that Mrs. Cressler meant here, inside?' She was a tall young girl of about twenty-two or three, holding herself erect and with fine dignity. Even beneath the opera cloak it was easy to infer that her neck and shoulders were beautiful. Her almost extreme slenderness was, however, her characteristic. The curves of her figure, the contour of her shoulders, the swell of hip and breast were all low. From head to foot one could discover no pronounced salience. Yet there was no trace, no suggestion of angularity. She was slender as a willow shoot is slender, and equally graceful, equally erect. Next to this charming tenuity, perhaps her paleness was her most noticeable trait. But it was not a paleness of lack of color. Laura Dearborn's pallor was in itself a color. It was a tint rather than a shade, like ivory, a warm white blending into an exquisite, delicate brownness toward the throat. Set in the middle of this paleness of brow and cheek, her deep brown eyes glowed lambent and intense. They were not large, but in some indefinable way they were important. It was very natural to speak of her eyes, and in speaking to her her friends always found that they must look squarely into their pupils. And all this beauty of pallid face and brown eyes was crowned by, and sharply contrasted with, the intense blackness of her hair, abundant, thick, extremely heavy, continually coruscating with somber, murky reflections, tragic in a sense vaguely portentous, the coiffure of a heroine of romance, doomed to dark crises. On this occasion, at the side of the topmost coil, a white aigrette scintillated and trembled with her every movement. She was unquestionably beautiful. Her mouth was a little large, the lips firm-set, and one would not have expected that she would smile easily. In fact, the general expression of her face was rather serious. Perhaps, continued Laura, they would look for us outside. But Paige shook her head. She was five years younger than Laura, just turned seventeen. Her hair, dressed high for the first time this night, was brown. But Paige's beauty was no less marked than her sister's. The seriousness of her expression, however, was more noticeable. At times it amounted to undeniable gravity. She was straight, and her figure, all immature as yet, exhibited hardly any softer outlines than that of a boy. No. No, she said in answer to Laura's question. They would come in here. They wouldn't wait outside, not on such a cold night as this. Don't you think so, Aunt Wes? But Mrs. Wessels, a lean middle-aged little lady with a flat-pointed nose, had no suggestions to offer. She disengaged herself from any responsibility in the situation, and while waiting found a vague amusement in counting the number of people who filtered in single file through the wicket where the tickets were presented. A great, stout gentleman in evening dress, perspiring, his cravat limp, stood there, tearing the checks from the tickets, and without ceasing, maintaining a continuous outcry that dominated the murmur of the throng. "'Have your tickets ready, please! Have your tickets ready!' 
such a crowd murmured page did you ever see and everyone you ever knew or heard of and such toilettes with every instant the number of people increased progress became impossible except an inch at a time the women were almost without exception in light-colored gowns white pale blue nile green and pink while over these costumes were thrown opera cloaks and capes of astonishing complexity and elaborateness nearly all were bareheaded and nearly all wore aigrettes a score of these a hundred of them nodded and vibrated with an incessant agitation over the heads of the crowd and flashed like mica flakes as the wearers moved everywhere the eye was arrested by the luxury of stuffs the brilliance and delicacy of fabrics laces as white and soft as froth crisp shining silks suave satins heavy gleaming velvets and brocades and plushes nearly all of them white violently so dazzling and splendid under the blaze of the electrics the gentlemen in long black overcoats and satin mufflers and opera hats their hands under the elbows of their womenfolk urged or guided them forward distressed preoccupied adjuring their parties to keep together in their white-gloved fingers they held their tickets ready for all the icy blast that burst occasionally through the storm doors the vestibule was uncomfortably warm and into this steam-heated atmosphere a multitude of heavy odors exhaled the scent of crushed flowers of perfume of sachet and even occasionally the strong smell of damp seal-skin outside it was bitterly cold all day a freezing wind had blown from off the lake and since five in the afternoon a fine powder of snow had been falling the coachmen on the boxes of the carriages that succeeded one another in an interminable line before the entrance of the theatre were swathed to the eyes in furs the spume and forth froze on the bits of the horses and the carriage wheels crunching through the dry frozen snow gave off a shrill staccato whine yet for all this a crowd had collected about the awning on the sidewalk and even upon the opposite side of the street peeping and peering from behind the broad shoulders of policemen a crowd of miserables shivering in rags and tattered comforters who found nevertheless an inexplicable satisfaction in watching this prolonged defile of millionaires so great was the concourse of teams that two blocks distant from the theatre they were obliged to fall into line advancing only at intervals and from door to door of the carriages thus immobilized ran a score of young men their arms encumbered with pamphlets shouting score books score books and librettos score books with photographs of all the artists however in the vestibule the press was thinning out it was understood that the overture had begun other people who were waiting like laura and her sister had been joined by their friends and had gone inside laura for whom this opera night had been an event a thing desired and anticipated with all the eagerness of a girl who had lived for twenty-two years in a second-class town of central massachusetts was in great distress she had never seen grand opera she would not have missed a note and now she was in a fair way to lose the whole overture oh dear she cried isn't it too bad i i can't imagine why they don't come 
page more metropolitan her keenness of appreciation a little lost by two years of city life and fashionable schooling tried to reassure her you won't lose much she said the air of the overture is repeated in the first act i've heard it once before if we even see the first act mourned laura she scanned the faces of the latecomers anxiously nobody seemed to mind being late even some of the other people who were waiting chatted calmly among themselves directly behind them two men their faces close together elaborated an interminable conversation of which from time to time they could overhear a phrase or two and i guess he'll do well if he settles for thirty cents on the dollar i tell you dear boy it was a smash never should have tried to swing a quarter the short interest was too small and the visible supply was too great page nudged her sister and whispered that's the helmick failure they're talking about those men landry court told me all about it mr helmick had a corner in corn and he failed today, or will fail soon or something but laura preoccupied with looking for the cresslers hardly listened aunt wess whose count was confused by all these figures murmured just behind her began over again her lips silently forming the words sixty-one sixty-two and two is sixty-four behind them the voice continued uh, they say porteous will peg the market at twenty-six well he ought to corn is worth that never saw such a call for margins in my life some of the houses called eight cents page turned to mrs wessels by the way aunt wess look at that man there by the box office window the one with his back toward us the one with his hands in his overcoat pockets isn't that mr jadwin the gentleman we were going to meet tonight see who i mean who mr jadwin i i, I don't know i don't know child i never saw him you know well i think it is he continued page he has to be with our party tonight i heard mrs cressler say she would ask him that's mr chadwin i'm sure he's waiting for them too oh then ask him about it page exclaimed laura we're missing everything but page shook her head i only met him once ages ago he, he wouldn't know me it was at the cresslers and and we just said how do you do and and then maybe it isn't mr jadwin oh i wouldn't bother girls said mrs wessels it's all right they'll be here in a minute i don't believe the curtain has gone up yet but the man of whom they spoke turned round at that moment and cast a glance about the vestibule they saw a gentleman of an indeterminate age judging by his face he might as well have been forty as thirty-five a heavy moustache touched with grey covered his lips the eyes were twinkling and good-tempered between his teeth he held an unlighted cigar it is mr jadwin murmured page looking quickly away but he don't recognize me laura also averted her eyes well why not go right up to him and introduce ourselves, or or recall yourself to him she hazarded oh laura i couldn't gasped page i wouldn't for worlds couldn't she aunt wess appealed laura wouldn't it be all right but mrs wessels ignoring forms and customs was helpless again she withdrew from any responsibility in the matter i don't know anything about it she answered but page oughtn't to be bold oh bother it isn't that protested page it's just because i don't know i 
I don't want to. Laura, I should just die, she exclaimed with abrupt irrelevance. And besides, how would that help any, she added. Well, we're just going to miss it all, declared Laura decisively. There were actual tears in her eyes. And I had looked forward to it so. Well, hazarded Aunt Wes, you girls can do just as you please, only I wouldn't be bold. Well, would it be bold if Page, or if, if, if I were to speak to him? We're going to meet him anyways in, in just a few minutes. Better wait, hadn't you, Laura? said Aunt Wes, and see. Maybe he'll come up and speak to us. <laughs> As if, contradicted Laura. He don't know us, just as Page says, and if he did, he wouldn't. He wouldn't think it polite. Then I guess, girlie, it wouldn't be polite for you. Oh, I think it would, she answered. I think it would be a woman's place. If he's a gentleman, he would feel that he just couldn't speak first. I'm going to do it, she announced suddenly. Just as you think best, Laura, said her aunt. But nevertheless, Laura did not move, and another five minutes went by. Page took advantage of the interval to tell Laura about Jadwin. He was very rich, but a bachelor, and had made his money in Chicago real estate. Some of his holdings in the business quarter of the city were enormous. Landry Court had told her about him. Jadwin, unlike Mr. Cressler, was not opposed to speculation. Though not a member of the Board of Trade, he nevertheless, at very long intervals, took part in a deal in wheat or corn or provisions. He believed that all corners were doomed to failure, however, and had predicted Helmick's collapse six months ago. He had influence, was well known to all Chicago people. What he said carried weight. Financiers consulted him, promoters sought his friendship. His name on the board of directors of a company was an all-sufficing endorsement. In a word, a strong man. I can't understand, exclaimed Laura, distrait, referring to the delay on the part of the Cresslers. This was the night, and this was the place, and it's a long past the time. We could telephone to the house, you know, she said, struck with an idea, and see if they've started or what has happened. I don't know, I don't know, murmured Mrs. Wessels vaguely. No one seemed ready to act on Laura's suggestion, and again the minutes passed. "'I'm going,' declared Laura again, looking at the other two, as if to demand what they had to say against the idea. "'I just couldn't,' declared Page flatly. "'Well,' continued Laura, "'I'll wait just three minutes more, and, and then if the Cresslers are not here, I will speak to him. It seems to me to be perfectly natural and not at all bold.' She waited three minutes, and the Cresslers, still failing to appear, temporized yet further, for the twentieth time repeating, I don't see, I can't understand. Then, abruptly drawing her cape about her, she crossed the vestibule and came up to Jadwin. As she approached, she saw him catch her eye. Then, as he appeared to understand that this young woman was about to speak to him, she noticed an expression of suspicion, almost of distrust, come into his face. No doubt he knew nothing of this other party who were to join the Cresslers in the vestibule. Why should this girl speak to him? Something had gone wrong, and the instinct of the man, no longer very young, to keep out of strange young women's troubles, betrayed itself in the uneasy glance that he shot at her from under his heavy eyebrows. 
but the look faded as quickly as it had come. Laura guessed that he had decided that in such a place as this he need have no suspicions. He took the cigar from his mouth, and she was immensely relieved, realized that she had to do with a man who was a gentleman. Full of trepidation, as she had been in crossing the vestibule, she was quite mistress of herself when the instant came for her to speak, and it was in a steady voice and without embarrassment that she said, "'I beg your pardon, but I believe this is Mr. Jadwin.' He took off his hat, evidently a little nonplussed that she should know his name, and by now she was ready even to browbeat him a little, should it be necessary. "'Yes, <clears throat> yes,' he answered now much more confused than she. Uh, my name is Jadwin. I believe, continued Laura steadily, we were all to be in the same party tonight with the Cresslers, but they don't seem to come, and we, my sister and my aunt and I, don't know what to do. She saw that he was embarrassed, convinced, and the knowledge that she controlled the little situation, that she could command him, restored all her equanimity. My name is Miss Dearborn, she continued, I believe you know my sister Page. By some trick of manner, she managed to convey to him the impression that if he did not know her sister Page, that if for one instant he should deem her to be bold, he would offer a mortal affront. She had not yet forgiven him the stare of suspicion when first their eyes had met. He should pay her for that yet. <clears throat> Miss Page, your, your sister, Miss Page Dearborn, certainly I know her, he answered. And you have been waiting, too. What a pity. And he permitted himself the awkwardness of adding, I did not know that you were to be of our party. No, returned Laura upon the instant. I did not know that you were to be one of us tonight, until Page told me. She accented the pronouns a little, but it was enough for him to know that he had been rebuked. How, he could not just say, and for what, it was impossible for him at the moment to determine, and she could see that he began to experience a certain distress, was beating a retreat, was ceding place to her. Who was she, then, this tall and pretty young woman with the serious, unsmiling face, who was so perfectly at ease, and who hustled him about and made him feel as though he were to blame for the Cressler's non-appearance, as though it was his fault that she must wait in the draughty vestibule. She had a great air with her. How had he offended her? If he had introduced himself to her, it had forced himself upon her, she could not be more lofty, more reserved. I thought perhaps you might telephone, she observed. Uh, they uh, haven't to telephone, unfortunately, he answered. Oh, now, this was quite the last slight. The Cresslers had not a telephone. He was to blame for that, too, it seemed. At his wit's end, he entertained for an instant the notion of dashing out into the street in a search for a messenger boy, who would take a note to Cressler and set him right again. And his agitation was not allayed when Laura, in frigid tones, declared, It seems to me that something might be done. I don't know, he replied helplessly. I guess there's nothing to be done but just wait. They're sure to be along. In the background, Page and Mrs. Wessels had watched the interview and had guessed that Laura was none too gracious. Always anxious that her sister should make a good impression, the little girl was now in great distress. 
Laura is putting on her grand manner, she lamented. I just know how she's talking. The man will hate the very sound of her name all the rest of his life. Then all at once she uttered a joyful exclamation. At last, at last, she cried, and about time, too. The Cresslers and the rest of the party, two young men, had appeared and Paige and her aunt came up just in time to hear Mrs. Cressler, a fine old lady in a wonderful ermine-trimmed cape, whose hair was powdered, exclaim at the top of her voice, as if the mere declaration of fact was final, absolutely the last word upon the subject, "'The bridge was turned!' The Cresslers lived on the north side. The incident seemed to be closed with the abruptness of a slammed door." Page and Aunt Wes were introduced to Jadwin, who was particular to announce that he remembered the young girl perfectly. The two young men were already acquainted with the Dearborn sisters and Mrs. Wessels. Page and Laura knew one of them well enough to address him familiarly by his Christian name. This was Landry Court, a young fellow just turned twenty-three, who was connected with the staff of the great brokerage firm of Gretry, Converse, and Company. He was astonishingly good-looking, small-made, wiry, alert, nervous, debonair, with blonde hair and dark eyes that snapped like a terrier's. He made friends almost at first sight, and was one of those fortunate few who were favored equally of men and women. The healthiness of his eye and skin persuaded to a belief in the healthiness of his mind, and, in fact, Landry was as clean without as within. He was frank open-hearted, full of fine sentiments and exultations and enthusiasms. Until he was eighteen, he had cherished an ambition to become the President of the United States. "'Yes, yes,' he said to Laura. "'The bridge was turned. It was an imposition. We had to wait while they let three toes through. I think two at a time is as much as is legal. And we had to wait for three. Yes, sir, three. Think of that. I shall look into that tomorrow. "'Yes, sir, don't you be afraid of that. I'll look into it.' He nodded his head with profound seriousness. "'Well,' announced Mr. Cressler, marshalling the party, "'shall we go in? I'm afraid, Laura, we've missed the overture.' Smiling, she shrugged her shoulders while they moved to the wicket, as if to say that it could not be helped now. End of Chapter 1, Part 1